This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, some new champions for You Can Fly. And speaking of new, there's a new look for 2021 AOPA fly-ins. Also, Flight Sim Geeks, be prepared. A new one's coming out from Microsoft. Speaking of being prepared, Ian, take caution when using disinfectants in a cockpit. Finally, flight instructors, somebody else agrees with what you've always said. You are essential. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk, Ian? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week is a pilot you caught up with, Jerome Stanislaus. Now, he's a he's a cool guy. You might not have heard his name, but this guy is active, he's passionate, and he wants to give back to the next generation. We caught up with Jerome Stanislaus, and he has a book coming out, Ian. It's called My Mom is So Fly. It's a children's book. Mm. It'll be out soon on Amazon, so keep checking your Amazon for the published date on that. And uh, Jerome's heart is in the right place. He's going to tell us all about his inner city outreach. Okay, fantastic. So, you know, we mentioned at the top, You Can Fly Champions. This is also about outreach. You may have seen the video online. This is with Dirks Bentley and Michael Goulian. A lot of folks know those names from country music and then Michael, obviously, from the air show circuit. These are two guys who are stepping up trying to uh, really preach the gospel about You Can Fly and to get, again, that next generation involved. And we rolled that out, Ian, on National Aviation Day, which was August the 19th which is a, a significant day. It's, a, you know, one of the Wright brothers' birthdays, and it all makes sense. But Dirks is a, a key aviator. He's loved it for quite a long time. And Michael as well, we've all heard of him and his uh, racing pursuits. But did you know that his, basically, he was grounded in flight instruction from a long time ago. His dad ran a flight school. Yeah, yeah, up in New England. That's right. A very successful one and, and well-known. So yeah, he's been around it since he was a kid. And actually, I was surprised to learn that Dirks also has been involved in aviation since he was a kid. I think he says he took his first flight when he was a teenager and, and, and has really loved it ever since. And so these guys are stepping up to really show people what aviation can offer with the idea that we're going to bring more on board in the future 
to to really talk about all the cool things that you can do with flying, how it can be a career or a recreational pursuit or, or whatever. Not all of them, I think you mentioned, are, are going to be necessarily big names, and a lot of them are going to be people whose lives have been changed uh, because of aviation. That's right, Ian, and we can't stress it enough. You know, everybody can get involved in aviation in one way or another, and we're going to introduce some of the regular folks, you know, like you and I and some students, as you mentioned, and maybe some other key individuals. You know, we're just trying to attract more student pilots to aviation, and we're going to champion the efforts of other people and promote them and share their their good things that they do with aviation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, hey, moving on, I know, you know, it gets a little tiring talking about the pandemic, but we want to bring that up this week, not to talk about an event that didn't happen or isn't going to happen, but some that will happen, and that is AOPA's in-person events next year. Of course, we had to postpone all the fly-ins for this year, but next year, looking at a different format that's going to fit, I think, what, you know, we're, we're going to come to expect is our new normal and it's uh, two different type of events, David. So, Ian, one of them is going to be an AOPA Aviator Showcase. And and you mentioned two different types of events. There will be two different showcases, Ian, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. We're basically going to bring the activity to the aircraft owners and also to pilots. And we'll have uh, products, services, and manufacturers in these two separate areas, East Coast versus West Coast. And we're looking to have 40 to 50 exhibits and, and maybe 20 to 30 or so aircraft. Yeah. So these are for these shows are for buyers. I mean, if you're an aircraft owner, you're looking for avionics and you are ready to buy. It's like you want to go test them out, you know, grill the reps, that sort of thing. You're looking maybe for a new airplane. This is the place to go. It's all in one spot. It's concentrated. It's not like Oshkosh where you have to walk around, you know, for three days to talk to five different people much more intimate. And so we're hoping that that people will have sort of better access to these airplane decisions kind of on the spot with these shows. Yeah, we're going to look at technology, as you just mentioned, and that is unfolding so quickly, Ian, you know, that we really do want to get on board with learning about some of the new technology and a lot of the safety benefits from the new technology. Mm -hmm. So that'd Mm -hmm. be a great opportunity for that. The other thing that we're going to do is have basically an AOPA pilot air tour. It's called the Gathering Air Tour. And that's going to give folks a chance to interact in person with AOPA Association personnel, you know, mingle, show some camaraderie and things like that. That's also going to be a multi-day, multi-stop tour with two different tours. Hmm. So we got multi-stops, multi-cities, and two different tours and there's also going to be a pilot town hall involved. So you get a chance to talk to and, and listen to Mark Baker. Yeah. So that's actually in survey data has told us that one of the things that members love about fly-ins is getting to interact with staff and, you know, getting all their questions, meeting people, you know, seeing somebody that maybe they've talked to on the other end of the phone. So that's what these air tours will offer one thing. And it's, I like to think of them kind of like a barnstorming tour, but maybe without the, you know, daredevil stunts. Exactly. So. <laughs> Just like a barn, like a barnstormer yeah. tour, but a learning barnstormer tour. Yeah, that's tour. right. So it'll be, uh, you know, the barnstorming across just to hang out, you know, and like you said, interact with AOPA staff here, pilot town halls from Mark. Now the, the locations for these events have not been set yet, but we wanted to get the word out there to get everybody sort of prime to to know what's coming next since it will be a little different from the fly-ins they will be smaller events which you know in these covid times now or a lot of states are requiring that they'll be outdoors which is you know as we know a safer environment and so we're trying to 
you know, keep that mission going of bringing aviation to our members, but do it in a safe way. With cautions in place, just as yep. you mentioned, Ian. But I do look forward to it. And there's a lot of a positive buzz about this at AOPA. And we're really excited to be able to go out and meet the people again. So I'm looking forward to it myself. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. Hey, Microsoft Flight Sim. Were you a Flight Sim guy? I did a little bit of flight sim. I want to throw uh, props to my buddy, Dwight Ross. He's no longer with us, but when I was back at the uh, AJC, the newspaper, Dwight had Microsoft Flight Simulator on his laptop, and he would play in between assignments, uh. you know, photo assignments at the paper. <laughs> it just blew my mind you know, yeah. the first time I saw this. But, you know, Ian, and I know you're going to talk about it a little bit more, but a lot of people really learn how to fly with Microsoft Flight yeah. Sim, and it's provided a, a really healthy background in aviation. Yeah, and, and of course, Microsoft went away from it for a long time. Really, I think when computer gaming kind of went away and went to consoles, and now it's back to computers. And so we are super excited that Microsoft Flight Sim is back. The graphics, you just got to go online and Google it. They are just, I mean, it's like real life. I, I, in fact, you have to look at it a few times to realize that it's actually not a photo shoot. You know, the graphics are incredible. Of course, I, I don't know. You probably have to have a pretty high-power computer, which, you know, I mine would end up going like... It, <laughs> and that was part of the deal, you know, as that yeah. program got a little more heavy, you know, in the technology world, it, it would actually stick a little bit. And that is yeah. one of the problems because back then the technology didn't really, couldn't really keep up with, with some of the programs, yeah. you know, the hardware couldn't keep up with it. But I think that we, we've solved a lot of it now. You know what, Ian, I was going to mention to you, cause you've been at AOPA for a good while longer than me. Were you involved in any of the Microsoft flight sim scenarios that revolved around some of the sweepstakes giveaway airplanes. Yeah, I mean, I know that, you know, folks were interested in programming those. So you could, you know, skins basically that you could bring into the program. I I was not involved. That was be a little bit, well, I think maybe I was there for like maybe one or two, but I didn't work on that uh, the project. Of course, AOPA was also involved in earlier ones, as was Rod Machado, you know, doing some of the learn to fly stuff. And so, I think, you know, especially now with like yokes and rudder pedals and power consoles and everything else, it's like Flight Sim is really a, a learning tool if you want to take it that direction. And it's a good way to kind of do some advanced planning if you want to, you know, in a, sort of a semi-real world scenario where you're, if you're going to go into an unfamiliar area, it's really not a bad idea to kind of learn mm -hmm. as much as you can about that particular airfield. Yep. And, and of course, I mentioned in this, in Jim Moore's story that it's like when I was doing my instrument writing, I went on, you know, I don't even know what version it was. It was the one with Megs, you know, as the home airport. And I had a really rough lesson with intercepting VOR radials. Just couldn't get that spatial thing down in my head. And the instructor and I are kind of bickering back and forth in the cockpit about it. And I went back to, to my dorm room, actually, and fired up Flight Sim and took about a half an hour, 40 minutes. And it's like, taught myself intercepts, never looked back. So it really can be for things like that. And it can be an incredible tool. And of course, we've heard, we've heard lots of stories of people basically teaching themselves to fly and then using the airplane kind of as a transition trainer. So it's, it's a phenomenal tool and a heck of a lot of fun. It is, it is. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that. That helped you get over a particular teaching hurdle because, and the Hangar Talk audience is going to hear this firsthand, I am yet again on the brink of starting my instrument flight training, you know, <laughs> in earnest. And so if I get stucky and I'm going to, I'm going to go to your playbook and pull out Microsoft flight Sam and see Absolutely. what I can do to help get me over those hurdles or those sticking points. 
That's right. So yeah, it's available now. Go online, just Google it, Microsoft Flight Sim. You can buy it right there online and download it. Definitely go for it. Now, this next story, we, we've talked a lot about disinfecting airplanes now in the, in the time of COVID and how do you do that, all those surfaces and really sophisticated equipment. Unfortunately, we now have an example of where it's gone wrong. Ian, that is true. Now, I want to say that the initial you know, reporting on this that I did indicated that there was some sanitizing material, liquid, out in an airplane. And someone who, you know, they meant well trying to sanitize this panel, but the overspray from a vodka distillery-based solution really damaged a Cessna 172 panel. In fact, the damage two of them at Atlas Aviation in Tampa. So uh, I want to caution people, you know, because here's the thing. It was hard to get some of that hand sanitizer for a long while, right? When yeah, right. the coronavirus hit, like you just couldn't find it. Of course, you couldn't find toilet paper, couldn't find bread, you know, yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> but um, That's right. But the distilleries stepped up to the plate like a lot of aviators did with mm-hmm. uh, PPE and flying that around. But they stepped up to the plate with some of their distillery-based solutions, which have other different chemicals in them, Ian, and, and that could lead to some of the damage like peroxide, you mm-hmm. know, things like that. So yeah, what happened was down at Atlas Aviation, one of the, one of the folks who rented a, one of the Skyhawks was coming back from a, you know, from a flight and sprayed down the, the yolks and uh, the overspray got on the panel and, you know, it's super hot down in Florida mm-hmm. and just baked on that panel. It was at probably at night where no one noticed it, the overspray, yeah. and it just caused a lot of damage to that painted surface. And, you know, the thing is, is that other people are going to use that airplane and for, and for that flight school, it just doesn't look good. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it's, you know, I will say Atlas, and you were careful to mention in the story, I mean, they had procedures in place. Unfortunately, this this person, like you said, great intentions, but uh, didn't use those procedures, you know, to the letter. And, and that's apparently what caused this. But it is very confusing for folks because like, for example, you know, Garmin will say, you know, only clean the screens with water, but then they'll have to, then they've subsequently put out some some information during this, you know, the the pandemic saying, well, okay, you can use up to 70% solution. But like you mentioned, it's like you got to be really careful about what else is in that solution, yeah. how it's applied, everything else. It can't just go with some random off the shelf, you know, like this one, you know, produced by a, a distiller with some other added stuff, sprayed straight on there. It's like that that is really not a good recipe. And, and now we've found out why. Yeah, indeed. And, and yeah, you mentioned a really good point down at Atlas Aviation. They basically have a triple check in place for the disinfectant procedures. Pilots are handed a, like a, a Ziploc bag with disinfectant and a cloth when they check the airplane out. They wipe everything down. They do the same thing when they bring the airplane back. They do it in, re- in reverse. They use a different Ziploc to put the cloth in. Smart. The, in between, the line personnel that service the airplanes, they also wipe down the interior and the, and the common exterior surfaces too. So there's really... Uh, a lot of thought was put into this process. And uh, Derek over at Atlas Aviation told me that he got together with a couple other FBOs down in the, you know, the su- South Florida area. And they kind of put their heads together and said, Hey, what are y'all doing? Well, this is what we're doing. What are y'all doing? So they came up with kind of a common plan that, you know, helps keep people safe in that cockpit environment. But you bring up a good point, Ian. We talked to my go flight and we also talked to Garmin and both entities said, 
to watch what you're doing, especially when it comes to those special coatings that are on top of the touchscreen mm-hmm. panels. Yep, those anti-glare coatings. Yeah. Right, or iPad or you know iPad mini, that kind of thing, because that oleophobic coating can get worn off with the wrong material if you're trying to spray something on there that you should not be using. Yep. Yep. So I would say if you're a renter, it's like, just follow the guidance from the flight school. It's, you know, they have established it to what they think is safe. You know, chances are you're not going to be liable if you follow their procedures. And if you're an owner, you know, I would ask some mechanics in the area, maybe about what materials you have in your panel. And then yes, definitely go on the manufacturer's websites, Garmin, you know, Avidyne, you mentioned my GoFlight, all of those. Apple has some guidance as well, Android, all of them, about what their screens can handle because they've tested this stuff and they know. That makes sense, Ian. And don't forget, we're there to help also. If you have any questions, you can call our Pilot Information Center and also look at APA.org and do a quick search for disinfectant and you'll see a couple of stories that we've written on that to help people out. Okay, great. So, hey, we want to finish this week with something that is, you know, maybe a little obvious to the flight instructors, but somebody else now has actually called them essential. Ian, we started to write about this early on back in March when the coronavirus hit. And I don't know if you remember it, but one of our good friends who who was on Hangar Talk, Barry Canudela with King Schools, told us that out in California, they interpreted the uh, flight training environment to be an essential part of the infrastructure, the U.S. infrastructure, because we're training pilots and aviation is key and transportation is key. Well, now we have the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Can't, I can't say that even <laughs> slow. I was going to say, yeah, right. <laughs> Do that three more times. They've released a coronavirus guide listing who the essential workers are and who, who they're not. And basically, we've they've now included instructors. Explicitly. That's right. Yeah. So obviously, a lot of schools during their state's shutdowns continued under, you know, sort of the assumption that they were essential, some shut down. This is a little more sort of cover if you want to stay open during shutdowns that, okay, DHS at least least says that instructors are essential. Of course, it's every school and every instructor's, you know, it's their personal choice what they're going to do. But if you're going to stay open under, under otherwise, you know, lockdown orders, it's like, you know, this is some cover to be able to do that. Right. And then the CISA's infrastructure page actually has more guidance on that. See, I can say that a lot easier. There you go. Yeah, the acronym. Then the Cybersecurity <laughs> and Infrastructure Security Agency. Oh, good man. But nonetheless, Alyssa Cobb, my supervisor, wrote this story. I'm glad she did because there was so much confusion about this at the beginning. And, you know, a lot of folks were taking a local tact at it, but reinforcing the fact that, you know, instead of it being left up to interpretation, there's actually now guidance on this. Yeah, great. So, hey, let's move on. You know, a lot of us experience aviation. It's like we go to the airport, we do our own thing, we come home, we enjoy it. That's great. But it's so important to have people like Jerome Stanislaus out there, you know, putting in the time and the effort to attract new folks. And I love, like you said, he's focusing a lot of it on some city kids, which uh, are, are kind of a neglected part of aviation, you know, a lot of times. So really excited to hear more from him. Welcome to Hangar Talk, Jerome Stanislaus, and we're talking to you today. I'm in Maryland, and you're up on the East Coast. You're uh, normally a New York resident, and you are in the Air Force Reserve, 
and you have been involved in pilot outreach for a number of years. Thanks for being on Hangar Talk. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. So, Jerome, I'm going to take it. I'm going to start right off the bat with asking you a little bit about your flying background. I want folks to know that Jerome actually has opened his heart to a lot of young aviators and has gotten them involved in aviation at a, at a pretty early age. And uh, that was a lifelong dream of yours, I know. But before we get to that, I want to know how did you get started in aviation? What attracted you to it? You know what? My interest in aviation, it predates my memory. And I can only say that because my dad tells me, you know, his favorite stories about, you know, my affinity for aviation, you know, which aren't even my own memories. I can't recall these stories that he tells me, but, you know, his earliest memory for me is when I was about three years old. But so I basically have been into aviation my entire life. And when you when you say thinking back to three years old with your dad, what did y'all do? Did you guys go to uh, the airport and kind of watch airplanes take off and land or exactly what? Uh, we were actually going on a family vacation to visit an aunt in St. Lucia. And he told me that as the plane was taking off, you know, I blurted out, this is magnificent, you know, and all the other passengers like turned around to see who's this three-year-old kid using the word magnificent. <laughs> so, you know, and for a long time, like the takeoff was just always my favorite part of being on a commercial flight. And now it took a couple of years for you to get from that feeling and being, you know, taking off in a commercial flight to actually handling the controls of a general aviation aircraft. Yeah. Did you have a, a mentor or someone that helped you get going that way? I didn't. I didn't have a mentor, so to speak. But I will say that my family, they did always encourage me to like stay focused and, you know, always keep like aviation, you know, as my focus. But as far as like having a specific person who guided me throughout the journey, like, no, I didn't, I didn't have one of those. Well, how did you get from watching air, airplanes with your dad to taking flight lessons? So that's an interesting story because once again, like growing up, I've always been into aviation and I've always had encouragement from my family. But for a very long time, like I didn't really, you know, see myself as, as actually accomplishing that goal. So out of high school, I joined the Marines and, you know, I, went, I did that for about 10 years. And when I got out, you know, after yeah, yeah, after the my contract, I applied at a aviation program at a college out in New York. So, um, it really took like going through everything that I've you know accomplished you know in the Marines. Actually, my first semester I applied to be a biology major because I thought I was going to be a biology teacher, but just, yeah, just my grades and having a 4.0 average for my first semester and doing so well in the Marines, I really believe that all right now I can do whatever it is I put my mind to because for so many years as you know growing up I really didn't think that I was you know that I would have actually accomplished uh, you know my goal of being a pilot so I switched majors I applied to the pilot program the pilot professional pilot program in far at Farmingdale University Farmingdale State College I'm sorry in New York and that's how me actually flying started in the professional pilot program at Farmingdale State College Outstanding. So now you're a Marine Corps mechanic from way back, and I know that you've got an airport management degree. Yep. You were an elementary teacher yeah. for a while. Yes. I mean, you've really got a lot going on in your background, Jerome. 
I do. Um, yes, like I said, straight out of high school, I really had no intentions of joining the military. And I walked past a Marine Corps recruiting office and the recruiter, you know, he asked me to come in. And at first I told him no. You know, I was just like, eh, you know, I'm, <laughs> it was like 2004. Everyone was dying on the news. So I was a little apprehensive about going to the military. But I decided to go in because, you know, you really can't make an informed decision without information. So I went in, I wanted to hear what he had to say. And, you know, one of the first questions he asked me was like, where do you see yourself in five years? And I said, well, I want to be a pilot. And being that I just graduated high school, I didn't have the credentials to become a military pilot. So he said, well, I could do something that's close to it and I can get you around them, you know, to fix them. So I ended up doing avionics on CH-53 Super Stallions for the Marines. So that's a helicopter for folks who don't know, right? Oh, uh, yes. It's a helicopter. It's a heavy lift helicopter. For the Marines, yes. Um, the Navy, the other branches have versions of it, but yes, it's a helicopter. So not only can you fly aircraft, you can work on them too. You're a rare breed. <laughs> um, I would. It's, it's been a long time since I've turned like a wrench on an aircraft. You know, I did have the opportunity to get an AMP license while I was, you know, doing that, but for whatever reason, I didn't pursue it. So legally, uh, yeah, I can't really work on an airplane anymore. But not yet, not yet. Yeah, not yet. Now, you're a private pilot. Now, I forgot to ask you this before we spoke. So let their hangar talk. Listeners know you're a private pilot. Are you also a commercial pilot or instrument or anything like that? I totally forgot. You know, I know you and I chatted a little bit before yeah, we got yeah. on the air. Uh, no, currently I'm, I'm still a private pilot. You know, I, I had to make a decision between my giving back to the community and like giving to myself. So as you mentioned earlier, you know, while I was going through all this training, uh, not, not going through all the training, but, you know, giving back to the community as a pilot. I was working as an elementary school teacher, which did not pay me enough to both, you know, give back to the community and pour into myself uh, and, you know, advance in my ratings. So I just kind of chose to be a little generous and then uh, focus on myself later on. But right now I am like studying to pursue to finish getting the rest of my, my licenses. So yeah, I've started back again. Okay. Understand. So I want listeners to know that you first came to our attention in a fantastic CBS news report that had a very moving video of you on there. Also with some young folks from New York and for, for folks who don't know, Farmingdale is out on long Island. It's a great airport Yeah, and uh, has a lot, a lot of flight training ops out there. But you also were uh, pouring your soul out to the folks at CBS, and you were talking a little bit about how much it meant to you uh, as an African-American to get your private pilot certificate and what you wanted to do to give back to the community. Yeah, that's, that, that's absolutely true. For the specific CBS interview, that one, yeah, they, they were some young people in that one. There were two, three kids. One of the girls in the plane was actually one of my my third grade students. So that was pretty cool to be able to take her on a flight as well. That's fantastic. You don't, you never know. She might be a pilot one day or a mechanic and a, yeah. or heck an engineer, you know? Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I always like try to like ask them, you know, you know what, just, just to see what they knew about aviation and the different opportunities. And, you know, for the most part, they really didn't know a lot about it. So it really just can, you know, kept that fire lit to, you know, try to expose them as much as I could to aviation. 
Well, that's a key part of your story. I want the listeners to realize that, that, you know, it was a challenge for you also, you know, to get uh, the financial support and to have the time, like a lot of us, to get going. But, you know, this is an uphill battle for a lot of people who don't know that aviation is a possible career option. You know, just looking at some of the figures, only 2.5% of professional aviators are African-American. 7% 7% are Hispanic or Latino, and we're only talking about 7% female, and that, that's up just a teensy little bit over the past 20 years, and so it's a real problem. How can we get more folks interested in aviation? That's a pretty good question. Uh, just really, it's just exposure. You know, you can't, it's hard to get into things you don't know about, which is why I feel, you know, so compelled to do the things that I do. I think last year, I, you know, I only got seven days of, you know, sick days and I spent six of them, six of those seven days going to other schools and, you know, doing career days or sometimes principals would ask me to come just by myself to talk to their students about, you know, the the different career opportunities in aviation. I had a PowerPoint presentation that I put together that it didn't just speak about piloting. I spoke about uh, being an AMP mechanic air traffic control and piloting. Like those were the three main career fields that I put in the PowerPoint. But I also let them know about flight dispatching, just like a lot of different flight, being a flight attendant. A lot of these careers, like kids, especially inner city kids, really just don't think about, you know, as for themselves. That's a good point. And, you know, there's more, like you just said, there's more to aviation than being a pilot or a mechanic. And, Flight dispatch is a really interesting career, and ATC is a great career, too. And you yourself uh, have a a management degree, airport management. That's a a pretty good way to think about things, too. You know, logistics and folks who are interested in IT or meteorology. I mean, there are a variety of venues that all lead to aviation. That's true. So, like I said, I just try to do, you know, what I can to get the information out there. You know, it's never something that I try to force onto people, but I'm literally, I just consider myself as, you know, someone who just leads the horses to water and whether they drink or not, you know, that's, (laughs) that's on them, you know. But at least to have the option there and let people know, you know, especially young folks, let them know that there's an opportunity if they choose to follow it. This is true. This is true. And for someone like me, you know, I had encouragement growing up, you know, like my parents, they always tell me, like, if that's what you want to do, you can do it. You know, my mom's cousin bought me a flight simulator when I was 12, you know, so like I had the family support, but in my mind, and I still didn't believe I could do it. So I think about those children whose parents are, you know, very apprehensive because of, you know, their lack of knowledge about aviation and you know, that sort of thing. Like there, there have been parents where, you know, they wouldn't let their kid fly or they weren't open to it because it was scary, you know, <laughs> like it, it was scary to get in a plane. So no, my kid can't do that. And, and it's just, it was pretty sad, you know, that that would be the reason, but yeah, I just, I just try to get the information out there as much as I could. Well, you just, you hit on something really key. I think Jerome, that a lot of parents you know, might be a little apprehensive about having their their children go up in a small airplane. But, you know, if you look at the advances that, that you've seen, actually, even since you started flying with digital cockpits, 
and the uh, FAA has, you know, basically opened up a lot of technology, you know, for us general aviation pilots to have in the cockpit to make things safer. And, you know, I'm thinking of angle of attack indicators, and I'm also thinking of, you know, terrain avoidance and weather and things like that. And, you know, it's, it's actually a lot safer. And that's even before you factor in manufacturers such as Cirrus who have whole aircraft parachutes. So maybe we could convince the the parents of these young folks that, you know, there, there is a way to safely manage those, those risks and those resources. Uh, yes. And I do do that. I do my best to try to go over statistics and just let them know that it is safe. You know, most of the time I get them involved and I find that is a way that I've been able to overcome the apprehension is to get them involved in like the pre-flight process, you know, so they know what things are, they know how things work, and they can have that warm and fuzzy feeling that, well, I checked that, so I know that it's good. <laughs> you know, like I'll have them go through the checklist and go through steps one by one. And, you know, that definitely has been a huge help with the fear or the nervousness, and it just becomes more exciting, you know, for them once they go through that process. So do you feel that getting the parents on board and getting them familiar with the checklist and maybe having a pre-flight briefing with them, does that, that puts them at ease as well as, as maybe the younger people? Yes, definitely, 100%. But then on the flip side, there are people who don't even consider that stuff, and they're just so excited to get in the plane, you know, so oh. where, where they don't even ask questions about safety and anything like that. I'm just like, all right, well, we're still going to go over these things, you know, so. That's that's important. I mean, I think a good pre-flight briefing is uh, extremely important for your uh, passengers and or, you know, optional crew members, you know, because we're always thinking ahead and we don't want to talk too much about emergencies, but we have to at least address it, you know, let let folks know how to get in and out of the airplane and and what safety features that they might have on board. I want to ask you another question here. It's a little bit out of left field. I was just thinking about it. You know, your your goal right now is uh, you're on active duty with the Air Force Reserve, and you are uh, basically looking to be a C-5 flight engineer. Now, does any of this cross over to general aviation at all? It does. Being a flight engineer, especially on the C-5, is a, is a very important job. I would like to fly, but I guess because of my age, there are waivers that needed to be done where, you know, they suggested that I was a flight engineer first. But, you know, prior to that, like, I really didn't know what a flight engineer was. So now that I'm going through this training, like, I've been learning a lot. And I'm basically the right hand to the pilots. And it's just the three of us in the cockpit. I do all the uh, performance data, takeoff and landing distances, cruise ceilings, um, handle, you know, the majority of the emergency procedures. Actually, I'm involved in all of the emergency procedures. And, you know, the pilots have some things they do. But for the most part, you know, I'm the first line of def- you know, the, the engineer is the first line of defense in an emergency. We, we listen to, you know, takeoff, taxi clearances, instrument clearances. You know, we write down all the instrument clearances and as the pilots are, you know, doing the readbacks and things like that, the engineer is listening to make sure that, you know, it's, one is being read back correctly and, you know, things like that. So the engineers, like I said, it's a very important job. And I do hope to like do transition to the, you know, the, the right seat at some point. Well, you know, let's let's look a little bit at that C5 galaxy that lockheed martin c5 galaxy i'm gonna tell you a quick little story when i was much much younger uh, my dad was into aviation back in atlanta 
and they made some of these, uh, they made the C5s at Lockheed over in Marietta, which is a suburb of Atlanta. And he got a, he got a ride in, in one, and it is a massive airplane. The tells, I know you've got to delve into a lot of the numbers, but like, give me a, a, a quick, you know, the quick version of maybe how, how long it is or how much, how much cargo it holds, something like that. These are just huge aircraft. Yeah, the C-5 Galaxy, it's the, uh, the biggest plane that the Air Force has. There have been recent upgrades to it, to, to the M model, which, you know, so they have newer GE CF-6 engines. The max takeoff weight of the C-5 is 840,000 pounds, but, you know, in, in emergencies, it can be wavered up to, to a million pounds, which is just, like, mind-blowing to think about a million pounds this plane can take off, you know, and land with, you know, so... It's it's a powerful plane. The landing gear itself is just a technological like just phenomenon because they you know they rotate in and then up into the they rotate ninety degrees inboard and then up into the uh, into the wheel well. So it's a very impressive plane. Like going through the school, like I'm thinking about man, I have to learn about this stuff. But my mind is really at the people who thought this up in the '60s. Like they had to be like just literal just geniuses. It's pretty impressive, and uh, for folks who aren't that familiar with the C-5, this is an aircraft where the nose cone basically is hinged and it opens. You can just roll pallets and pallets of gear into these aircraft. It's it's pretty interesting technology. Do you know that, thinking way back, that Lockheed and Boeing were both going head-to-head to try to get that military contract what ended up being awarded to Lockheed for the C5 and this Boeing 747 was originally one of these, you know, one of the aircraft that was uh, trying to capitalize on that contract. They did not win it, but they, um, I think the story goes that the Boeing people flipped the wings on the bottom and, uh, and sold it as a passenger airliner. And it was a hugely successful endeavor. Well, the C5 actually has, they do have passenger seating, a uh, 75 seat passenger seat so, well 73 passenger seats but there's also two seats up there for load masters so it's 75 seats up there you know airline style seats but the only like real difference is they face the rear of the plane so you're taking off you know with your back versus how we normally take off in a passenger airplane yeah i think i'd rather look to the front but that is interesting it's kind of like uh, some kind of train car uh, yeah. you know, configuration a little bit. I was just looking at the stats. 222 feet is, uh, the wingspan. 69 feet is the tail plane yep. and 247 feet from nose to tail. And it's 65 feet tall to the top of that T tail configuration. That is it a is. big bird. Those are correct numbers. Yes. Well, I get a little, there's a little, I'm a little stickler sometimes with the, with the, uh, with the numbers, but yeah, you're, you're, you're spot on. Well, this is going to be a real interesting uh, endeavor for you to pursue being a flight engineer on a C5. I'm very impressed. So now what's, what is in the future for you, Jerome? And uh, you know, can people track you down anywhere these days? If they want to chat, they want to talk a little bit about aviation or maybe be inspired uh, and you know, you can be their mentor. Can they find you anywhere? Uh, yes, I primarily use Instagram for aviation. I do get a lot of messages on there from people, you know, just letting me know that they're inspired. And I really appreciate those messages a lot. Uh, my Instagram handle is Tuskegee Bloodline, Tuskegee Bloodline at Instagram. But I do answer pretty much all of my messages. So 
I'm not not someone who just only speaks to people that I know. Like I respond to everyone. That's really a good way to be to to be a mentor for other people. I was going to ask you about your your handle because that's also part of your email handle. Yes. Do you actually have? Do you know if you have a Tuskegee bloodline in your family? No, I do not. A lot of people think that because of my handle, but I do not. When I was creating my Instagram about two years ago, well, converting it from the photography Instagram that I had, I was really trying to think about a username without just using Jerome Stanislaus. And uh, the Tuskegee Airmen, like they've always been a huge inspiration for me. I actually have like a tattoo, like my my right, my left arm has a whole like dogfight scene going on there between the Red Tails and you know, some German fighter planes. But yeah, I was really trying to think about something bigger than myself. You know, it wasn't when I was creating the aviation page, like I wasn't creating, like in my mind, I wasn't creating like just a page for me. Like I created my Instagram with the purpose of, you know, just documenting the stuff that I do in aviation and with the intent of specifically to inspire. So the Tuskegee bloodline, you know, in my rationale, was that I am a descendant, you know, metaphorically of the Tuskegee Airmen and basically just any African-American, you know, black pilot, you know, do belong to that proverbial bloodline of the Tuskegee Airmen because they they pretty much paved the way, you know, and you got to think like that's the that was the 40s and there really hasn't been anyone in between there, you know, to kind of keep that torch going to like the same level you know that they did so that's where that's where the the name tuskegee bloodline came from well i just i just uh followed you on instagram so you'll have a new follower in just a few minutes oh, and i, uh, I think that <laughs> no problem no problem and that is important for folks to think about because you know the tuskegee airmen were pioneers they overcame a lot of odds and were you know played a very you know a very impressive role in World War II. And to this day, we honor a lot of the Tuskegee Airmen. And uh, and we're sad to see that that generation, they're all in their 90s and, and even close to 100 these days. So it is something to keep that spirit alive. And, and it sounds like you are doing that. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing the best that I can, you know. So, and but it's not just me. There are a lot of like other you know, young pilots who are taking, you know, it upon themselves, taking some initiative to inspire others. Yeah, it's just like the list is actually a lot longer than, you know, I thought it would be prior to like doing this myself, you know. So I just feel very fortunate and very blessed to be able to connect with people like that, you know, right now. Absolutely. And when we're blessed to have you join us here on Hangar Talk, even for a few minutes and our final uh, closing notes here, I want to I want you to think, think deep a little bit about this for a minute, Jerome, and give us one tip for an aspiring aviator, one tip that would help lead them to a life of aviation. Well, recently, the, the, the advice that I've been giving to new aviators that have been asking me questions it's about, you know, like just like studying and being prepared for flights. And I always try to say, you know, know what's going on on the ground before you get into the airplane, especially as a student pilot. It's very expensive to learn how to fly. So make sure that anything your instructor tells you to do, like, you know, it inside and out on the ground. That way, when you get into the air, 
you know, it's just demonstrating what you already learned on the ground or just familiarizing yourself, seeing how it works. But you already have the bulk of the knowledge in the ground school and safety. <laughs> Safety's first. That's a that's an excellent tip. I like that. You know, project to the future and uh, and also, you know, use all of your resources as we're trained as well. But yeah, think about everything that you're doing on the ground before you get in the aircraft and then you know, it'll come easier and it'll be safer. That's that's good advice for folks who are just thinking about it and for them to follow you at Tuskegee Bloodline on Instagram and they could reach out and chat with you if they need to. Anything else, Jerome? Because we really appreciate your time. Uh, you know, we've been trying to hook up with you since I said um, about a year ago, since last April and May, you were um, on the CBS News and also on CNN. So we really appreciate you finally being available for us. I know you've been quite busy. Any final thoughts? I think we had a great conversation so far. Um, yeah, I would just like to just thank you guys for, once again for having me. And uh yeah, if there's anyone who has any questions, if there's any way that I can help, I'll definitely do that to the best of my ability. Sounds good, Jerome Stanislaus. We appreciate you being here on Hangar Talk, and hopefully our paths will cross one day soon at an airport. Oh, that'd be outstanding if that can happen. All right. Well, and best of luck in your duty as an Air Force Reserveman and on the C-5 Flight Engineering Deck. Thank you very much. So, Ian, I really enjoyed hearing from Jerome Stanislaus. You know, he's an interesting guy. He's a Lockheed C-5 Galaxy flight engineer. In addition to being a sky jumper, you know, jumping out of what we call perfectly good airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> but his mission really is a good mission. The one that we talked about earlier on the show on Hangar Talk, you know, where we have our champions. Well, Jerome is also a champion in his own way. And we're really looking forward to his children's book, My Mom is So Fly. That's the title of it. It should come out on Amazon soon as we record this. And, you know, his heart's in the right place. He used a lot of his own money to get some kids up in the air. And we'll just have to see what that outreach ends up doing to get more people in a diverse crowd back into aviation. Yeah, that's fantastic. Absolutely correct. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twomley. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk. We're also on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time, David. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.